Hello to all you Trekkies and Trekkers out there. Welcome to this week's episode of Ship Talking. I'm Brandon, and this week I'm actually joined by our amazing audio engineer, George Davies. George, welcome to, well, should we say your vocal debut for the pod of sorts? How are you? I'm doing very well. It's nice to finally be sort of corporeal and be (laughs) in the podcast itself in more than just a secret end of the podcast or mixing role. Yeah. Yeah, It's lovely to finally speak to you in this capacity. I'm, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Brandon? I am doing great. I'm really excited to have you here. And I guess I actually can't say it's your vocal debut since you did sing for us on the holiday episode at the end. Uh, Santa got a spore drive. Loved it. It's great. Uh, In case anyone's wondering, so Robbie was away last week on an away mission during our guest chat. And that's actually turned into a quest for temporary shore leave. And it's very much deserved. He's actually preparing for a brand new endeavor in his Earth job. And he needs a couple weeks to get all settled in. In all facts, he actually got a giant promotion in work. So Robbie, congrats. Spend this time getting ready for it. We'll look forward to welcoming you back. But George, excited to have you here, and it's going to be a fun episode. Well, the command pips on my collar are already getting a bit heavy, so I hope Robbie's back soon, and I promise I'm not gunning for his job. (laughs) But, you know, it's lovely to be here. Thanks again for joining. Uh, Well, on this week's episode, the insanely cool and talented Bill Krause is going to be joining us. Not only is he a ship artist and physically models all of his ships, but he also custom designs each one. I love his work. He's also the founder of Tycho Shipyards, and if you've seen his models, you know how incredibly detailed each of them are. He does this wonderful thing where he combines sort of TOS and, and other eras together to make something that I feel is really respectful to that design language that we're all used to from the original series, from that era. And he's just so good with lighting his designs and really making them feel like they legitimately fit into that universe. I love it. I'm looking forward to actually talking to him about that in that the sense of like, these are TOS era, but they're being designed with today's technology and today's designs. It's almost like what Doug Drexler kind of went through Mm. with the NX-01, right? Pre-TOS, but it still had to look cool in today's standards. So I'm sure we'll we'll get a chance to talk to him about that. I think we're running out of in-betweeny periods that you can set things in. I mean, obviously, we've had prequels upon prequels and in-betweenquels and yeah. All of the various eras of Star Trek are getting investigated. And I mean, obviously, with Discovery, we've got some sort of trailblazing into a new era, which is very refreshing. But yeah, sure. Uh, we can just spin up a new timeline. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a good point. There's always a new timeline. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, the discussion with Bill during the episode is going to be 14 minutes long. And our patrons that are subscribed via Patreon at the Enterprise C tier or higher will have access to the full expanded chat. Its runtime is around 44 minutes. Before we go meet him in 10 forward, we're going to review your answers for this week's Community Q and, of course, share the next one. And after the chat with Bill, we'll warp on over to the All Hands on Deck segment and announce next week's special guest. We're in for a lot of fun this episode, so let's get trekking and move into this week's Community Q segment. For this week's Community Q, we asked you all to think about the cool things you've seen ships do and let us know what your favorite ship gimmick is. I've been really excited to see this one. We've been planning this one for a while. There are so many different abilities ships have, and we've seen, of course, different things, and we continue to see it as new series come out. So lots of fun that I think we're going to continue to see. But in terms of everyone's most submitted response for this week's Community Q, it was actually fitting because Voyager just had its 26th 
year anniversary from its mm. first premiere. And that was actually Voyager being able to land. So go to Blue Alert. I always personally wasn't entirely sure about Voyager's ability to land just because there's certain pieces of technology, I think, in Star Trek that we take for granted. Uh, grav plating and the ability to sort of like mess with the, yeah. the center of mass of certain things is one of those. And seeing Voyager land with this huge spoon without a landing leg <laughs> and then these tiny little landing legs on the ground always made me chuckle a little bit. But it's certainly a very cool feature and I'm glad that it's carried over into certain other ships uh, in the later canon. In terms of other frequently mentioned gimmicks, uh, we keep on the Voyager theme because we had Voyager as a blade of armor, of course from Endgame. We had multi-vector assault mode, which we saw first in Voyager's episode Message in a Bottle. And then we got into some of the classic gimmicks like saucer separation and cloaking. Yeah, I mean, I mean, saucer separation being such a big deal in the TNG pilot really makes multi-vector assault mode look uh, <laughs> look pretty fancy. You know, they spend five minutes going, separating the saucer at warp? That's madness! And then multi-vector <laughs> assault mode is just flicking a few switches and the whole ship splits into three pieces. No problem. <laughs> no concerns. No five-minute build-up. It's all cool. Clearly technology's gotten a bit stronger in, in, the, in the years between. Yeah, well, if you remember back to our first episode with Rick Sternbach, he actually talked about multi-vector assault mode being five pieces originally. <laughs> so we thought two was crazy. Then we're like, okay, let's push it with three. And it almost was five. But you know what? We've seen crazy stuff happen with ships separating and little pieces flying about. So not out of the realm of possibility. Definitely within the whole gimmick theme, though. In a show where, you know, time travel frequently solves problems, having having a ship split into three to five pieces really isn't that much of an ask. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Now, in terms of something that I was actually surprised to see was there were several submissions specifically for the spinning Boussard collectors of the original 1701, which are very iconic. Yeah, they're classic, and they're also something that's featured quite heavily in Bill Krause's designs, which is a little spoiler for later. Yeah, that's true. And for the next Community queue, we're going back to basics and asking you something I'm surprised we've not asked before, and that's just, what is your favorite ship class of all time? I actually couldn't believe we hadn't asked either, so I'm glad we're doing it now. So we'd like to put a little spin on it, and we'd actually like two different answers. We want you to pick your top Starfleet ship, as well as your top alien ship. And of course, send those via any subspace frequency, including old-fashioned email, going to our website and using the submission form, or just shoot us a tweet. I'm really wondering what you're all going to come up with, and if there are going to be any common themes. I know I've got some strong opinions on the matter. That said, Bill is due to arrive in 10 forward shortly. So, Brandon, why don't we go down, grab our seats, and replicate a nice glass of Dralaxian whiskey? You had me at Bill, but whiskey will also do. <laughs> Seeing as you're in Ireland, I thought it might get you moving. So let's go. <laughs> let's go. From my standpoint, I have nobody over my head saying, you can't do this. There's no director or producer or no designer or another fan saying, that's terrible. Don't do that. I just do whatever I want because I have no boss over me telling me you know, I can't design this. I can't build that. So that's what's great for me is that the creativity is, is my only limit. And I'm only competing against myself, I guess I should say. When I design a ship, I'll design or I'll, at least I'll imagine the list of other ships that are in that class and I'll sign names and numbers for all the ships. That, like, there may be like five or 15 mm. other sister ships in that, uh, sure, yeah. that category. Nice. And uh, just for fun, I always uh, do a, a cast 
crew list uh, as if this were a major motion picture being shot in 1968 or whatever, who would be in Hollywood who I would cast as the captain and the first officer? And I would build this chart. <laughs> That's brilliant. And uh, for, in case of the Endurance, the captain is uh, Lauren Bacall, cast as uh, Nora Jansen, the captain of the Endurance, and her first officer is played by Paul Newman. All right. Chief engineer is Robert Redford. And these, these are all actors who would living in the same era. Yeah. Imagine when, if this were a major motion picture, who they would cast from Hollywood. So this is my own dream team of who they might, 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 they might cast. So those are things I, I do for fun. But I also have friends who are, are fan authors who have one in particular, Dennis Young, who's written a fan novel of almost all of my designs. And he, he self-publishes these, these things and uh, sends them out for cost of the printing. But uh, it's always fun to see, you know, his, his take on, He's being inspired by a design I've done of a ship, and he'll write, you know, a story about it using the, cac- the actors that I've cast. Hopefully, in mind, he's thinking of a Paul Newman or Lauren McCall when he's writing about these characters when you're reading the story. But uh, it's it's kind of like a whole other world that exists beyond my workbench that's it's kind of floating out there now. So it's uh, it's kind of fun being my own little Gene Roddenberry in this uh, world of Tycho. Let's talk about founding of Tycho Starship Yards, because I don't think many can say that they founded their own Starship Yards before. <laughs> it was just kind of a, a fictional thing I had to just throw behind uh, the building of my ships to make it feel more real for me that uh, there's actually a fictional shipyard that's building these craft that I guess I've never been seen before. It's just my own take on on Star Trek and uh, kind of stealing ideas from, of course, other designers and yeah. trying to make my ships kind of fit that universe. But in my own version of it. So uh, since I have a workshop and I'm building these things as if they're almost real, I kind of had to give it a name. So Tycho is sort of, well, it's a, a play on the 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. The, I thought it, okay. May. So mm-hmm. some of my ships kind of uh, use some design influence from 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's so cool. Okay. I, it's kind of like, imagine a, uh, you know, a hybrid Star Trek 2001 as if that technology eventually became what you see in Star Trek. So I'm trying to harken back a little bit to uh, the 2001 aesthetic, if you will. I love that. And when you're actually working on your ships, because you have something to liken back to in terms of your own starship yards, you probably feel more immersed. And when you're in that flow, you're like, okay, I'm actually here. And you are actually there because you're making those models, but it kind of puts you in that mindset, which I know Mm -hmm. for myself when I'm working on creative projects, when I can get into that mindset and I'm actually role playing in a sense or picturing myself there, that helps those creative juices flow. Yeah, you're spending hours and hours and hours in front of your work bench working on this spaceship and it's not just the model at that point because you're working at basically at a scale level so you're in, the, in your mind you're thinking well i'm in the shipyard and i'm building this thing as if it were a real ship and it helps i think set the detail level if you make it seem real in your head um you can try to imply that in what you're working on so it's just it keeps my mind busy as i'm working on these things for days on end it seems like something i saw in another one of your interviews was you were mentioning how you you design elements that aren't going to be seen in the final model like you sort of lay out some corridors and bridge and consoles and stuff working on those features that might not necessarily sort of actually be visible or tangible is uh, that further reflection of that kind of if I really put myself in there, I will do better work than if I just go, I'm making a ship today. Right. That, that's the next level after you've designed a ship is uh, once you start placing portholes in the ship, you think, well, where are these portholes? They have, there has to be some meaning behind where they are. And you just can't randomly place them all over the ship because, well, there might impede something that uh, might be behind there. So you're, you're thinking ahead of, of 
corridors and deck heights. And so I'll do a, a kind of a brief sketch of, say, a, a profile cutaway and showing where decks might be, where windows might be. And in some cases, I may have to actually build an interior to fill those holes or portholes. I think I did that with the Endurance, where I had to build a uh, an indoor promenade, like a botanical garden. And I built windows to show that and fitted within the ship. So, you know, those things you're thinking about uh, sort of in the design process before you get to building them so you can make room for that in the ship uh, or the model as you're, as you're going. Uh, so you're not just putting, you know, like I say, random portals everywhere and just putting light behind it. So there is some thought behind that. One thing I always found a bit odd in Discovery was how whenever you see an exterior of the turbo lift, it's in this massive cavernous realm where you can't see the edges of the room. Mm-hmm. And I start thinking about how I saw a video once that was talking about how the various neck widths of the different enterprises vary from like 30 feet across to, you know, in the case of like the Enterprise B, it's this massive monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes into what can actually physically fit in the ship. And one thing I, I liked about your designs, the hood in particular, was that it uh, takes a lot of the things I like about the Constitution Enterprise and it sort of puts more detail into what I can imagine going inside the neck and the neck structure as it connects to the sort of bridge module and the saucer section. I can imagine more functional space in there rather than just like in the case of the TOS Enterprise, you've got these incredibly thin, long rooms that would be yeah. in the neck. <laughs> right. One of my design, I guess, uh, features is that I like my ships to be more compact and sturdy. Look at the TOS Enterprise and everything's very thin and way out there. There's pylons for no apparent reason way out yeah. there and then the neck is incredibly thin. I think I was when, when I'm working in scale, I actually measured out on my floor with tape actually how wide the neck of the TOS dorsal was or even the refit. And it's like 20 feet. It's like not even the width of my my. my basement i think my god how, how do you fit an elevator <laughs> and corridors and windows and, and a space barely wider than my bedroom so and this is holding up this gigantic saucer which is several hundred feet in diameter bracing it up against the secondary hull so some of the uh, design ideas which look great but in reality it's like is this really practical yeah. uh, so the, you look at the, at, the, at the hood which has a much shorter dorsal it's twice as wide and the, mm. kind of beefed up everything to make it more compact well it's a, it's a battle cruiser so i thought well why not just make it thick <laughs> it's it's basically a hot rod version of the enterprise and i just kind of chopped and channeled it so i thought it looked cool talking about workable internal space the the uss vengeance from the mm-hmm. abrams verse abrams <laughs> timeline i remember people criticizing that at the time not you know i, I think having the bridge in, in like a bubble like it, it's fine and i thought it looked like a great warship but of course it's got the profile of an exploration cruiser and i think uh, uh benedict cumberbatch's khan says like designed for minimal crew and it can be piloted by two people yeah He's thinking, wow why do you need all that internal space for two people <laughs> the hangar bay is like several football fields long right with nothing in it so wh- why are you building all this ship for for what purpose exactly exactly and i forget who was on our show but they were talking about the original enterprise where it was really just the exterior that was created and then when they had these interior shots like we don't know where this actually goes you know on the interior of the ship but we've seen that kind of design shift we know that ship designers now Mm -hmm. are shifting that okay we've got to design the inside and when you're starting that are you going back to you know pen and paper are you doing it digitally and where does that process start for you when you're actually figuring out okay, I'd, I'd like the outside to look like this, but I've got to figure out the inside first. I think it starts like anybody starts with an idea just on paper with sketches and ideas okay. to get a flow of, of line. And it's really about, at least when I'm designing Starships, I'm building it as sculpture. It's, it's artwork. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and making it look like it fits, you know, a certain era, whether it's TOS or motion picture era or whatever, looking at those designers and, and being influenced by what they've done. So it doesn't look like something else. So it has to right. fit that realm, but be something unique. So you, you start with a sketch of either a profile or a heads and trying to get the balance right, to get a flow right. And then from that, I'll go to, into digital and I'll build a 3D model of it kind of roughly to, uh, to build from. And that okay. way you can see it from all angles and make sure it looks good from every single angle. Because you can have an idea that looks great as a profile and you turn it sideways, like, whoa, this looks like garbage. So you really have to be able to look at it in all three dimensions before you start building it. So that's how I, I think I like to do that. Uh, I use a very simple free program called SketchUp. It's very, very basic and I'm not really great at it, but it gets me where I want to go. Sure. At some point, I will print out plans that I will build from. Or I may okay. use parts of that model and actually have it 3D printed if it's something that sure, I don't feel right. like having a scratch build. So it depends on my time and if I feel I should better spend building it by hand or if it's so detailed I need to have it printed somewhere else. So Yeah, and I love that you, you haven't gone the traditional kit bash route, right? You've made your own unique designs. And like you said, they do pull inspiration maybe from each other. And I think my favorite shot that you've released is where you see the entire fleet kind of from the top down mm. and you can see right. not only the size differences, but you can tell that they are part of that fleet. You know, if you were building ships for the Federation and they were Tyco Starship Yards ships, they would all have a similar feel, right? Because they can came from the same design mind, but they're all mm. unique in their sense. It's kind of built in or kind of stuck with that because I'm the designer. So yeah, yeah, of course. Kind of by default, look like something I've made. So I love the idea that, you know, canonically, Tycho would exist as a sort of rival to the other Starfleet yards. And I like the idea that, you know, a captain will go, what ship am I going to be given? Am I going to be given a Tycho or a Utopia Planitia? <laughs> mm-hmm. You tend to sit just after the original series, and I think there's a bit of uh, leeway there because the Endurance, to me, at mm-hmm. least, looks... A little bit closer towards the Enterprise C, you know, it's got that uh, deflector dish and the sort of hull geometry underneath that reminds me more of the D, and that, but it's still got, you know, TOS design language. Are there any other eras that you feel particularly drawn to? I do like the eras that have not previously been explored. So mm. like you mentioned uh, the eras between, say, the Archer and the TOS, or even between TOS and the motion picture. These are kind of like these little uh, hidden areas that uh, we've not seen explored. So I yeah. kind of like doing hybrids between the two to create my own version of what ships may have existed in that time. Yeah. When you see the Enterprise in TOS, you know, Kirk is the third captain of the ship. This ship's been around since the 2240s. So mm-hmm. you imagine that there has been probably been other ships being designed and built between that in the motion picture that that's where the hood and sentinel and all stuff lives is our ships that were being built and put into operation during tos so i kind of look at the motion picture as a, a certain milestone mm-hmm. uh, of design yeah. you mentioned endurance and actually endurance is pre-motion picture it is 2270 oh. though it looks as though it may still exist uh, beyond that and with the endurance as well it's got an echo of the nx pontoons coming into the saucer section as well and the nacelle structure itself reminds me of the large late war single engine fighters that you'd get in the second mm. world war with the uh, there's room inside for for all of those pistons and all of that horsepower especially in the american air right. force yeah the, the p40 and the p38 uh, the allison engine design was a great influence mm. on the, uh, the front half of the nacelle of, of the endurance and it, you mentioned the twin neck on the endurance and uh, that was something i came up on my own and i posted start posting sketches of that John Eves said, hey, that's a great idea. I, I like what you're doing there. You would not believe it, but I designed something like that as the discovery. Yeah. And I got shot down. Uh-huh. But keep going with it because we're coming back to this design later on. And he eventually returned to that design and the, he made it as the uh, the Emmett Till that you see in some kind of DS9 thing. But uh, he did return to that uh, twin neck 
idea. That's brilliant. But he was very complimentary of my design on endurance. And I think he took something from the endurance and put it into the ship that's in Picard at the very end. I'm not sure what it is, but he, he emailed, he was drawing a sketch one day at work. I said, um, I, I want to take something from the endurance. What can I, can I borrow something from it for my ship? <laughs> sure, whatever you want. That's a great and, compliment. He didn't, didn't tell me what it was, but I'm, I think it's something to do with the Picard ship. If you look at it, it does have a kind of a twin neck. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, the inquiry class, which we saw as Riker ship um, at the end. Right. Um, I don't want to infer that he did indeed use that, but I, I'm looking at it, I go, I wonder if that's what he did, because it's not unique to having a, a twin neck on anything, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, maybe he did uh, incorporate some of the endurance in that, into that ship. Well, Bill, we know you've got a plethora of schematics to get back to, but before we go, we've got five rapid fire questions for you. We'll read the questions out loud, and we want to know the very first answer that comes to mind. Does that sound all right? That sounds all right. All right, Bill, what's your favorite ship? I would say the Refit Enterprise. What's your favorite series? The original series. Favorite captain? Pike. If you were headed into Starfleet Academy and had to pick one of the three career tracks, command, science, or... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. (laughs) I can see you were waiting for that one. Mm -hmm. Okay. And lastly, um, we know that the destabilization of even a single Omega molecule, as seen in the episodes Omega in Voyager, can render warp travel permanently impossible within a radius of several light years. Uh, After an incident in the mid-23rd century where a failed experiment caused this to happen, Starfleet immediately stopped all research into it. Uh, Given what happened with the burn, as seen in Discovery, do you think the risks of reinvestigating the viability of this technology would be worthwhile given the advancements that we've seen, you know, in the, the 32nd century. Sure. Why not? Star Trek, you got to do it. Okay. <laughs> is, is it okay? Okay. You passed the test, Bill. Don't worry. That was exactly what we needed. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really can't wait to see more of that work, especially some of those teasers you gave us here on the show. Uh, and of course, have you back in the future. While you head out, George and I are going to move into this week's All Hands on Deck segment. For this week's drill, we visited the shipyards and ran a scenario with all of you. We said, The Federation is retrofitting select ship classes and installing enhanced tachyon beam emitters with the intent of enabling longer-range tachyon detection grids. You're part of the task force that is providing recommendations on what ships should receive the upgrades. Which three do you put forward? And we gave bonus points for including why. So first off, I thought I'd remind everyone what a tachyon is. So that is a subatomic particle often associated with time travel, or sometimes it's produced as a byproduct of a temporal distortion, but they can also exist as a byproduct of a cloaking device. So Starfleet developed tachyon detection grids to detect cloaked warships, and what they do is set up different ships that use active tachyon beams between one another so that any cloaked ship entering the field would be exposed. And for this drill, many different ship classes were submitted, but unsurprisingly, most of them fell into the science or research ship category, and the three most submitted were the Nebula, which had an interchangeable module or pod on the top of the hull, so that might be the perfect place to house the upgrade, the Luna, which also had a similar module, and the Vesta, specifically because we knew that it could carry different modules and be interchanged, and for its advanced scientific capabilities. Yep, I mean, the Vesta seems to fit most selections that people submit to the pod. It seems to be a pretty powerful ship in all regards, so it's no surprise to see that there. Uh, Same with the Lunar. I mean, it shares a lot of capability with those TNG-era ships, but, you know, it's just a bit more modern and it's got a bit more sort of 
of bulk to it. So you can imagine it being in a tactical situation. Uh, yeah, makes total sense to me. One of the things that I think is important to remember that since these are science or research ships, they'd be further out exploring. So if Starfleet was looking to use this longer ranged technology, that'd be perfect for them, right? It'd be very versatile because they'd already be out there exploring and if they needed to activate it, boom, bounce the beams off one another. They're already out on their other missions that they're doing and then detect all the cloak ships. And specifically the Vesta for long range detection, obviously it's got quantum slipstream and is capable of, you know, send send five Vestas out somewhere to set up one of these grids. <laughs> They'll be able to do whatever you want and get back before dinner's ready. It's funny you mentioned because someone did say, oh, just I'd send three Vesta class ships. <laughs> they didn't even want to put four different class ships. They're just like, I'm going to send three Vesta. I'm pretty sure it was a troll submission because some of our listeners know a uh, little inside joke within the Star Trek community, but a couple of them said they'd send out three O-Birth ships. <laughs> well, the O-Birth always seemed to be the scientific vessel, which, uh, you know, theoretically science should be nice and safe. So let's send a ship which can't take a beating, you know, barely has any weapons or shields. And then, yep, your O-Birth ends up half inside an asteroid. What do you know? Exactly. Or maybe, you know, it's got that canoe looking thing at the bottom. Maybe it's done a water landing on a planet, activates its grid and can detect cloaked facilities on a planet. Cloaked fish, perhaps. And cloaked fish. We'll, ju- we'll say that. <laughs> uh, if you want to participate in our weekly drills, we announce them on Twitter towards the end of each week. So do keep an eye out there. We're coming to the end of this week's episode, but before we remind you of our socials and ways to get in contact, Brandon, I believe you have some news on who is joining the show next week. I do, and I'm very excited to announce that my good friend and previous colleague from my Star Trek Online days, Admiral Al Rivera, is going to be stopping by to talk ship with us. Al is the lead designer for Star Trek Online, and we're going to chat with him about how he brings to life all of the ships you get to command in the game. He's bound to have some fun stuff for us, so you won't want to miss it. Don't forget, hailing frequencies are always open. Head to shiptalkingpod.com to transmit a message, and while you're there, you can check out our merch. We've been starting to get images of people wearing our logo out and about, and we do love to share it, so if you do, make sure to send it in to us. And while you're on the website, make sure to click the link to our Patreon at the top of the page and view all the special benefits we're providing to patrons in return for your support. This includes expanded chats with all of our guests and even the chance to interact with some of them on a daily basis. You can also get in touch by sending an email to hello at shiptalkingpod.com. We love getting your feedback and comments in addition to all entries to the community queue. We reply to every email we get. That's actually how I got involved in the show. That is very true. So please do email in. We're also on Twitter at ShipTalkingPod. James, our community manager, runs the socials there, and he likes to engage with you all every day, not only posting ship facts and other fun tidbits, but he also posts our all-hands-on-deck drills there. As always, the best way to support us is to tell your ship enthusiast friends about the show. They can find us on any and all of the podcast platforms, or just send them to our website and they can get direct links from there. And I can't end us without saying thank you, George, for all you do as our audio engineer, and of course, our amazing community manager, James Amy. I'm really proud to have you both on the team and thankful for all your hard work each week to get the pod live and bring the community together. It's my pleasure. It's been wonderful working on the pod with all of you. It's been a really nice way to get through this very troubling of 12 months. And of course, thank you to our amazing listeners and community out there for the support. Stay safe and well, and we'll catch you next week. See you all next week. Bye. Bye.
can detect cloaked facilities on a planet? Cloaked fish, perhaps. And cloaked fish. We'll, ju we'll say that. Cloaked fish, perhaps. Cloaked fish. Oh no, Glub Glub. It would appear we have been found out, Glub Glub. We must retreat further into the ocean. Make it so, Glub Glub. 